Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 27. Today we will be reading book 7, chapters 19 through 21 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So this is the end of book seven. Congrats. Uh, at the end of book seven, St. Augustine realizes that the under- his understanding of theology, his understanding of Christ and the scriptures is incomplete. And this won't be something that's new for St. Augustine, but just another moment of sort of revelation of of the mystery of God and the depth of God. For someone who's so sort of desirous of, of pursuing wisdom and knowledge, I think this is a, a moment in St. Augustine's life to take note of. He also concludes this book by comparing the Neoplatonic texts that he had been reading with those of the scriptures. So it's not the first time that St. Augustine has compared the scriptures to another text or this sort of thing, but it's it's a new time with the Neoplatonic texts and the, and the writings of Plato and his successors. So we're going to look at how Augustine handles that too. Before we do, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 19. But I myself thought otherwise at the time, believing that my Lord Christ was merely a man of exceptional and unequaled wisdom. In particular, because he was wondrously born of a virgin, he seemed to have attained through the divine care for us the highest authority as an example of despising temporal things for the sake of obtaining immortality. But I could not in any way imagine the mystery that was concealed in the words, the word was made flesh. Based on what was written about him eating, drinking, sleeping, walking, rejoicing in spirit, sorrowing, and conversing with others, I understood only that the flesh did not cleave to your word without a human soul and mind. This was known by everyone who knew that your word is immutable, something I now knew as far as I could, having no doubt about it. For the soul and mind, subject to variation, perform all these actions, to move or not move one's limbs, to be affected by some feeling now or not, to speak words of wisdom through human signs now while at other times remaining silent. And if any of these things said about him were false, then all the rest would also risk being so, and nothing would remain in those books for bringing mankind saving faith. Therefore, since they were truly written, I held that Christ was a perfect man, not merely the body of a man, nor merely along with that the kind of soul that brute animals have, but rather a man with a rational soul. 
And I judge that he should be preferred to all others, not merely as a form of truth, but indeed as someone having a particularly great excellence in human nature, and a more perfect participation in wisdom. Olypius, however, imagined that Catholics believe that God is so clothed with flesh that Christ would only be God in flesh without any human soul or mind. And because he was strongly persuaded that the actions recorded about him could only have been performed by a living and rational creature, he moved more slowly toward the Christian faith. However, when he later understood that this was the error held by the Apollinarian heretics, he rejoiced at what the Catholic faith taught and was better disposed to it. But I confess that it was only somewhat later that I learned how the true Catholic understanding of the saying, the word was made flesh, was to be distinguished from the falsehood of Photinus. The rejections voiced by heretics make your church's beliefs and sound doctrine stand out more clearly, for there must be heresies so that what is genuine might be made manifest to the weak. Chapter 20. Now that I had read those books of the Platonists from whom I had been taught to search for your incorporeal truth, I saw your invisible things which are understood through created realities. And though I was cast back, I did catch a glimpse at what I was prevented from contemplating on account of the darkness of my mind. Yes, now I was sure. You exist and are infinite, though not diffused in space, whether finite or infinite in extent. You truly are the same forever, suffering no change in some part of you or in some motion. And all other things came from you, a truth that had its sure foundation even solely on the grounds of the very fact of their existence. I was sure of all of these things, but my certitude was not enough for me to enjoy you. I babbled on like someone who knew a great deal, but until I sought out your way in Christ our Savior, I would not be filled with wisdom, but emptied out in death. For now I had a desire to seem wise, filled with the punishment that was justly mine. And yet I did not mourn, but rather was puffed up with knowledge. Indeed, where was that charity that builds upon the foundation of humility that is Christ Jesus? Or when should these books teach it to me? Therefore I believe that you had willed that I would stumble on to these books before I studied your scriptures, so that my memory might have a clear recollection of how they affected me, and so that afterwards, when my spirits were tamed by your books and my wounds touched by your healing fingers, I might discern and distinguish between presumption and confession, between those who saw the direction they were to go without however seeing the way, indeed the way that leads one not merely to see our blessed homeland but to dwell there. For if I had first been formed in your sacred scripture, tasting your sweetness, the regular reading of it, and then found those other volumes, they may perhaps have lured me away from the solid ground of piety. Or even if I did remain in a healthy state of soul, I may have thought that that health might have been obtained by the study of those books alone. Chapter 21 Thus, with great eagerness, I took hold of your spirit's venerable words, above all those written by the pen of Paul the Apostle. Then all those difficulties that I used to feel vanished before my eyes. No longer did I think he fell into self-contradiction, nor that his words were out of harmony with the testimonies found in the Law and the Prophets. And I looked upon those pure words as though they had only one face, and I learned to rejoice with trembling. In this way I began, in whatever truth I had read in those other books, I found it here amid the praise of your grace. I saw that he who sees may not glory as though he had not received not only what he sees, but also the very fact that he sees. For what does he have that he has not received? And also he may not only be admonished to behold you, who are forever the same, but also he may be healed, so that he may embrace you. And he who cannot see from afar off might yet walk upon the way that leads to you and come to see and embrace you. 
For though a man might delight in the law of God in his innermost self, what shall he do with the other law that is in his members? At war with the law of his mind, holding him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. For you are just, O Lord, but we have sinned, having committed iniquity and acted wickedly. Your hand lies heavy upon us, and we have been justly delivered to that ancient sinner, the king of death. For he persuaded our will to be like his, by which he failed to abide in your truth. What shall wretched man do? Who shall deliver him from this body of death, if not your grace through Jesus Christ our Lord, who was begotten of you co-eternally and fashioned at the beginning of your ways, in whom the prince of this world found nothing, deserving of death, though he nonetheless killed him? And thus the bond that stood against us was blotted out. All of this was not contained in the writing of the Platonists. Those pages did not present the image of such piety, the tears of confession, your sacrifice, which is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, the salvation of the people, the bridal city, the pledge of the spirit, and the cup of our redemption. In their pages no man sings, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly moved." No one there hears him call, Come to me, all who labor. For they scornfully refuse to learn from him, because he is meek and lowly of heart. For you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to infants. For it is one thing to stand upon a forest-covered mountaintop, and look upon the land of peace, without seeing the way there, striving in vain, upon impassable roads, assailed by fugitive deserters lying in wait, with their captains, the lion and the dragon. But it is another matter to keep your feet upon the way that leads there, guarded by the hosts of the heavenly commander, where no one is attacked by those who deserted the heavenly army, for they avoid this path as though it were torture itself. All this sank marvelously into my depths when I read the words of the least of your apostles, meditated on your works, and was filled with fearful trembling." All right. So as I mentioned, um, St. Augustine has a sort of recognition of the depth and the breadth, the width and the breadth, however those words go together, of the mysteries of God. Um, he's been searching, he's been looking, and it's one of those things I think um, God is, is one of those things that, you know, you ask questions, you kind of begin to seek some answers, and, and it seems that more and more questions appear because of the nature of God. He says this, right, that, but I could not in any way imagine the mystery that was concealed in the words, the word was made flesh. We talked on an earlier episode about the logos and the word and the the prologue to the gospel of John, but here St. Augustine meditates on on the mysteries, the depth of the mysteries. And I don't know, Father Gregory, you just wrapped up doctoral work. You've done more studies than I have, but I've both done a bit of studies in theology and, you know, listeners who have studied, there's, I don't know, thoughts on sort of like realizing the coming to the same realization of St. Augustine, or maybe you haven't, maybe you've kind of plunged everything and you're kind of there, but yeah, thoughts on, on coming to know God in the breath with depth. Yeah. I think, um, this is a cool vantage on what the church believes about our Lord Jesus Christ, because St. Augustine is writing after the Council of Constantinople, but he's describing a time roughly contemporaneous with the Council of Constantinople, or shortly thereafter. So you might know, uh, listeners, that the church has ecumenical councils. Uh, the church has had 21 of them, which are effectively you know, big councils, typically to address doctrinal questions in the church's life. And the first 
you know, six, seven, eight of these councils have very important Christological consequences or have very important Christological themes at the heart of their discussions. The first being the Council of Nicaea, which, you know, is against Arius and vindicates the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second council at Constantinople, it clarifies that Christ takes a whole human nature. Now, we're going to have to make further clarifications about that, but basically what we're saying is that our Lord Jesus Christ is God, right? So he is a divine person who took to himself an integral human nature, so a human soul and a human body. And speaking of that human soul, we would say a human intellect and a human will and human emotions and even some of the defects which are associated with human sin. So things that wouldn't have been true of Adam and Eve in their primordial state, but which are true of us after sin. Our Lord even takes those to himself without himself sinning. So that'd be like hunger and thirst and suffering and death. Those are classic examples. So St. Augustine is you know, coming to faith and he's coming to an understanding of who our Lord Jesus Christ is, and he's already described in an earlier chapter of this book seven that he is taken by the Platonist notion of the Logos, and he recognizes the Logos in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, but he doesn't understand, you know, as the Gospel of John goes on to describe, um, he doesn't understand the Word made flesh. Olypius has somewhat more of an understanding of it, but he says, what you have here is the Word of God, you know, the second of the most blessed Trinity, unites himself directly to a human body with no intervening soul. And that's the error of Apollinarius. So um, you find them here at this very important Christological juncture of the church's life, and you see the variety of errors which can arise as they navigate their way through them. So I, I find it to be a really cool vantage, a really interesting perspective. Yeah, it's uh, as you were describing Christ and the reality of who Christ is, you know, that we profess Christ truly to be true God and true man. And as the church wrestled with not whether or not that's true. Well, some did, you know, heretics denied that, Apollinarius, as Father Gergi just mentioned. But um, as the church wrestled to understand what that means and working out the, some of the nuances of what that means, again, it's one of those moments where you're sort of exposed to the vastness of the mystery. And we can know things about God and we could know a good deal about God, but there's even a lot, there's a lot more that we, our minds just don't have access. We're not privileged to know. And I think Augustine is kind of, recognizing this, he probably already has, but he's putting it in writing at least. So there's a bit of humility in, in that. One of the things too that he does in these last chapters is he reflects again on the sort of his relationship, his experience of reading Plato, Neoplatonic texts and the scriptures, Catholicism. Remember he did this too with Cicero. And when he was reading Cicero and had a, a chance to read the scriptures, he found the scriptures lacking in comparison to Cicero's writing. At the time, St. Augustine was much more attentive to the way in which things were said rather than than the truth of things that were being said. It's he's he's moved on from that a bit and he he professes that he's, you know, he rejoices in the fact that he is moving from reliance on Neoplatonic writings to the scriptures rather than moving in the other direction. Um, so, so there's something to be said for that. But as we talked about uh, when we were starting book seven with our intro episode and in the earlier chapters, our review of those, St. Augustine doesn't leave the sort of philosophy of the Platonists and Neoplatonists behind. It's not as if he abandons them, but he takes up their their writings, the, the truth that they have to profess as a sort of foundation or a way, a lens by which to dive more deeply into theology. So he's not forsaking it, but he's moving more deeply. And I think that's important for us to do with St. Augustine. 
Yeah. And you have here a kind of classic Christian understanding of how different disciplines or different subject matters relate. So you'll maybe have heard the like study of theology described as the queen of the sciences. Theology is, you know, the study of the faith. Basically, what we begin with are revealed principles, so the very knowledge of God and of the blessed, and then we reason upon it. And I think whenever we're talking about faith discourse, which St. Augustine is engaged in here, you're talking about a kind of theology. And usually, he, he judged theology by his philosophy, right? So he was committed to something on a philosophical level or maybe just on an experiential level, and he used that as the reason for which he's making these pretty severe judgments, maybe on sacred scripture or maybe on other things besides. But here you see a change is taking place where the study of the faith, I mean, just faith itself is assuming a higher importance in his life. And now he's using that to judge other things. So here he, he returns to the sacred scriptures. He finds that things he formerly thought contradictory no longer appear to be such. Evidently, he's been healed and grown beyond former you know, obstacles or hindrances to in- his engagement with the sacred page. And it's begun to assume a kind of principled place in the discourse and in his life. And so he's able to use the Platonists, but doesn't become you know, like a kind of slave of the Platonists, and as a result of which, shut out from admittance to, you know, like the, the four courts of sacred scripture. So as, you know, he he comes into service of the queen, then the handmaid, we might say, or the servant, philosophy assumes its proper place, which is a beautiful transformation to witness. And one of the things that he sees lacking in the, in the Neoplatonists and where Catholic thought and the scriptures uh, aren't is their lack of any sense of of grace, of the grace of God, and the virtue of humility, especially humility. You know, the ancients, the ancient philosophers, the pagan philosophers don't hold humility to be a virtue, but often criticize it as a weakness. Um, whereas when we read the scriptures and read of Christ and the writings of St. Paul, who it is Paul who points this out, who makes this clear uh, to Augustine, um, humility has kind of a pride of place in the Christian life because it does in Christ's life. But it's, it's this lack of grace, humility, obviously the lack of of the triune God and and Christ, sure, of course. But these two things St. Augustine mentions as as lacking in the Neoplatonists and their sort of understanding of the world. And um, it's reading St. Paul that Augustine begins to get a sense of this and to get a, a greater depth of understanding here as to what is sort of necessary part and parcel of the Christian life, this virtue of humility, the reality of God's grace, the gift of God's grace. Um, And it's in reading Paul that Augustine's conversion and understanding here goes even more deeply and progresses. So yeah, I think for us, as, as we've said from the very beginning, that especially grace, this idea of grace, this theme of grace, the reality of it is at the heart of Augustine's not only his own conversion, but his teaching, what he's giving to us. Um, And here we see it how the, how this understanding even affects his own life. Yeah, and I've often heard it said that the reason you don't see humility in the ancient tradition, which comes before Christianity, is that we needed humility revealed to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's really significant that in this last chapter of Book 7, he gives us a little kind of kerygma or a little mini proclamation of the gospel where he describes how, you know, God took flesh, suffered and died for our sins, rose from the dead so as to save us from the threat of eternal punishment. He doesn't use all those words, but it's like a kind of encapsulation, as it were, of the gospel, because it takes, you know, a reception of the gratuity of this gift of God, of our Savior, in order for us to appreciate the place of humility, 
One, because it's lived by Christ, it's modeled by Christ, but two, because it's the necessary precondition for our accepting it, um, for our welcoming it into our lives. And so, you know, like St. Gregory the Great will describe humility as like the foundation of the whole virtuous life, because we have to recognize that, you know, what do we have that we have not received? If therefore we have received it, why do we boast as if it were our own? That passage from 1 Corinthians 4, which St. Augustine will quote here. And so that's going to give him a sense of the uniqueness of the Christian claim and the heart of the gospel, and in encapsulating it right before, you know, the book that recounts his conversion, it's very precious to us. And so I love, you know, the last lines of this particular chapter where he describes his his meditation upon the sacred scripture, it produces in him a kind of trembling, you know, a kind of quaking in his boots, because once you realize the stakes of the game, you realize, you know, what you stand to gain, but also what you stand to lose. Yeah. So my, I guess, as far as like final thoughts on book seven for me is, um, as Father Gregory mentioned, Augustine's conversion comes in book eight. So get pumped, get excited. Uh, what, what I like about book seven is that these moments as we've, as I've expressed and these episodes where the conversion is, is, is happening. You can see it happening as St. Augustine recounts it, his understanding of the goodness of creation, the goodness of him being a part of creation, the salvific mission of Christ, Christ's love for him, the, the, the work of grace and humility as revealed to him by St. Paul. These, these things are all sort of adding up and we can see the pieces coming together in St. Augustine's own life. Uh, so it's, yeah, I, I really appreciate appreciate and, and like to dwell on those moments. I have enjoyed dwelling on those moments throughout book seven. Um, Father Gregory, final thoughts on book seven. You get the final word. Oh, wow. Would you look at that? My final word would be, uh, maybe say a little prayer for humility, uh, you know, because we see the effect that it has in St. Augustine's life. It comes right before his conversion. And I suspect that in each of our lives, a little prayer for humility will always be followed by, if not a great conversion, at least a small conversion. And we always stand in need of those. So yeah, prayers for humility. There you go. Well, next time we're going to turn to book eight. So stay tuned, get excited. As we mentioned, the conversion, it's coming. Uh, in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm-hmm.